Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Welcome, everybody. This is the Dialogue Sunday School for uh, Sunday, March 29th, 2020. Um, speaking, this is Chris Kimball and Linda Kimball. We are uh, individually and together members of the Dialogue Board and uh, emceeing or conducting church speak this, this session, um, this week with uh, Rosalind Welch. For a few bits of business or information, you should know that we're recording this session. Um, because of the, our numbers, we're over 60 people at a few minutes before and over 100 already. Uh, we are not going to be able to run a fully interactive session. We will, we have everybody except Rosalind Welch and Taylor Petrie on mute. And if you have questions or comments, join the chat room and make comments there. Linda and I will follow the chat room and try to interject when, when there's a good question. Okay, um, we intend to start on the hour as we did today. Um, we will go as long as Rosalind speaks uh, with a rough understanding that we're working with a 50 minute hour, but that's, uh, we won't try to fill the time padded on either end. We'll, it will be up to Rosalind. A um, couple of words about position and point of view. Uh, Rosalind has been invited for her own point of view and her personal interpretation without imposing or expecting, uh, laying on any expectations. Uh, dialogue does not promote a particular point of view, but dialogue encourages what have I written here for myself? A sincere and mature study and conversation. To be clear, this is a gathering of believers and seekers in the context of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But this is not, this Sunday school is not church sponsored, not authorized. Nobody here is speaking for the church or authorized to say anything that is meant to be or purports to be a church statement. I, I hope that's clear. Uh, however, although this is not a church meeting, uh, we would like to invite the Spirit to be with us as we gather in Christ's name. And Taylor Petrie, who is the editor of Sunstone, uh, Sunstone, where? Who is the editor of Dialogue? Sorry, Taylor. Uh, <laughs> Taylor Petrie, who's the editor of Dialogue and has coordinated and organized the Sunday School um, meetings, gatherings, has agreed, offered to say an opening prayer. And Linda Hoffman Kimball sitting next to me will offer a closing prayer when, uh, when Rosalind finishes. Taylor, you're on. Okay. Dear Lord, we've come together to gather in a spirit of community with a willingness to learn and to grow today. 
to be taught in our minds and in our souls. We want to thank Rosalind for her preparation and her time and her generosity to teach us. And we ask a blessing on her and express gratitude for her bringing us together to create fellowship among us. We're grateful for the guidance that we've been given to be prepared and to care for those around us. And we ask a blessing to find uh, those who are in need and that we can help to alleviate their suffering. We bless our doctors and nurses and other medical workers and the drug companies who are helping us in this crisis. And we ask a blessing on our national, state and local leaders to have wisdom and compassion. We bless our church leaders and our missionaries with wisdom and safety as well. And we bless all of us to find some peace in these tumultuous times. We ask that the spirit be with us today and with us uh, throughout the rest of our week. And we uh, say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, Taylor. Um, excellent. Christian has now made me the host. I have the reins. I have the power. Thank you so much to um, Taylor, to the dialogue board who invited me to teach this class today. Um, what a wonderful idea. It's a privilege to be here. It's been a joy to spend some time thinking about these scriptures um, and preparing some thoughts to share with you. Um, this is new for me. I'm a not an experienced Zoom user, and I haven't ever, I'm going first, so I haven't had the benefit of seeing other people moderate and conduct a class like that. Um, I have a little bit of a pounding heart right now, so a few nerves, so I would ask for your support. I appreciate the prayer. Um, it was my request that we begin with a prayer, um, and I appreciate it. So um, as Christian mentioned, um, because of our large numbers, it's, I think, impractical to try to deal with multiple audio feeds. So um, much of, I'm sorry to say, much of what you'll experience today will be me talking and I'll share my screen from time to time. Um, but I really would love to have other ideas and participation as well. So a few times in the lesson, I will throw out um, a question. And um, I hope at that point you will, using the chat feature um, on your Zoom app, you will um, submit thoughtful responses to that question. I'll have um, Christian sort of, um, Christian and Linda will, will sort of look at those, moderate those, and I'll ask them to share at those times what they think are especially salient or insightful comments. Um, we, given our large numbers, we certainly won't be able to get to all of them, I'm sure. Um, but I, I really do um, hope for your, I, I hope to engage your thoughts. Um, and in, in a perfect world, we would be able to discuss this all. Um, really, what an amazing group we have together. So let's, um, let us dive in. Today, um, we are looking at the book of Enos, the books of Jerem and Omni, and then the words of Mormon. <clears throat> so the book of Enos, for sure, is um, the most well-known of these textual portions. Um, it is a beloved story. It's a memorable story. Um, for those of us who have lived with the Book of Mormon for a long time, it's one of the stories that we have heard the most um, and thought about the most. Um, it has a powerful and direct message about the power of prayer, about the loving responsiveness of God, um, the expansiveness of Enos's soul as his prayer radiates outward from himself to these successive circles of concern. But the book of Enos itself is a little bit of a puzzle. We know those first 18 verses really well, but 
there's another 10 verses or so after that. And they really don't seem to fit well with what came before. It's hard to reconcile those narrative voices. It almost seems as though there might be two or three different narrative personas there. Um, we have the opening narrative, but then we have some historical material um, about the Nephites and Lamanites, verses 19 through 24. Um, that frankly contains some really harsh othering language about the Lamanites. Um, and then we move on to his sort of farewell where um, he, um, Enos sort of invokes a very beautiful, um, peaceful and loving reunion with God, which actually doesn't seem to fit very well with his description of Nephite religion at that time. So how do we make sense of these different disjunctions? Um, it could be a function of Enos's age and experience as he has grown and worked on this record at different times. Um, it could be a function of genre, right? He's writing in different generic forms in these three portions of the book of Enos, and that probably shapes his tone and shapes his content in important ways. Um, or who knows? It's possible that he may have employed some sort of um, assistant, right? Um, and, and perhaps we actually do um, have multiple consciousnesses in this book. Of course, we know that we do because we have Enos plus on layered on top of that, we have the consciousness of the translator as well. So let's, um, let's dive in and see what we can make of this puzzling book. I'm going to share my screen here for a minute. Um, there we go. All right. And I tried to practice this and it's still gonna take me a second here. Okay. So um, today I'm gonna try to hit on three main points. Um, I don't know how long that will take. Um, and I have a lot of extra material if we have time um, we can go through that as well. But the three main points I want to talk about today are Enos's wrestle, Enos as a priestess, that intrigue you, and then um, prophecy and repentance. So first of all, thinking about Enos's wrestle. Here I have right here um, this beautiful picture of Jacob wrestling God, wrestling the angel. I believe this is the images that is on the front of Terrell Gibbons's book, Wrestling the Angel. So here in these very first verses, Enos 1 and 2, Behold, it came to pass that I, Enos, knowing my father that he was a just man, for he taught me in his language and also in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and blessed be the name of my God for it. And I will tell you of the wrestle which I had before God, before I received a remission of my sins. So, this narrative immediately connects us to two scriptural models. Nephi, in the way that that first verse very self-consciously echoes the language of 1 Nephi 1. And then, of course, the Old Testament patriarch Jacob, who wrestled with God in Genesis 32. Jacob wrestles with God all night. He demands a blessing, and in return, he receives a new name, Israel. So Jacob, um, or Enos is um, comparing himself to, or invoking the, um, the narrative of, of, of Jacob wrestling the angel. Um, so what do we make of that? In the story of Jacob wrestling the angel, there are many different interpretations of that story. Um, 
sometimes it's understood that we have to work and sacrifice and persist and wrest these blessings from God. And, you know, this may be true. And in some ways, um, those messages fit um, or chime with the story of Enos, who prays all day and all night and who truly persists in this engagement with God. But this interpretation that, that um, Enos is wrestling with God in the way that Jacob wrestles with the angel would imply that God is reluctant to forgive Enos's sins because that is what Enos is seeking is a forgiveness of his sins. That somehow he has to wrest this forgiveness from a reluctant God. And that doesn't square with what we know of God's nature. And notice, in fact, that there's a really important difference here between Enos and Jacob. Enos doesn't wrestle with God, but Enos wrestles before God. The wrestle which I had before God. So Enos isn't struggling to wring or demand or wrest these blessings from God. He's struggling with something else and that struggle is happening in the presence or in the sight or before God. So then we have to ask ourselves, who or what is Enos wrestling with? So I um, one suggestion, and I, uh, I hope you will think about it, and no doubt there are other answers out there, but I think one suggestion is that Enos is wrestling with himself. Enos is wrestling with his own inherited prejudice against the Lamanites. Perhaps he's wrestling with his own resentment of his own people, the Nephites. Um, given what we know about Enos's father, Jacob's very pessimistic view of Nephite culture and religion, um, and then also given what we know of the Nephites' cultural attitude towards the Lamanites, which is record recorded in in verse 20 here of Enos, um, they had, it's reported that the Lamanites had this evil nature. They were ferocious. They were filthy. Um, this is what Enos has inherited within himself. Perhaps resentment and disapproval of the Nephites, really ugly cultural othering of the Lamanites. So perhaps his prayer on their behalf is a wrestle with himself a wrestle within his own heart for charity, for the love of God. Um, and it comes um, as a gift from God, as a grace over the course of that long day and that long night that he prays. God is not a reluctant giver of grace. He is a willing giver once Enos has wrestled down his own mental barriers. So, the first question that I want to throw out there is about this suggestive phrase, before God. What does it mean to pray or act before God? Um, and I'll, I'll ask you to um, submit some ideas via the chat function as you're doing that. And as um, Christian is taking a look at those, um, I'll share some ideas from myself and then we'll have Christian share some of your ideas. Um, so me, this, I, this, this phrase, doing something before God, the wrestle that Enos has before God, to me, this implies a kind of rigorous honesty. And in fact, a few verses later, the idea of honesty um, um, comes up. Enos 
says that he knows God cannot lie, right? When we do something in the presence of God, it, it strips away the self-deception, the lies that we tell ourselves, whether they be comforting or destructive, the lies that we tell other people as well, the lies that we live. Um, I think for different people, self-deception can take different forms. Um, for some, it is self-flattery. We know that this is something the Nephites are especially prone to, thinking that they are better than the Lamanites. And Jacob tried hard to strip those scales from their eyes, evidently unsuccessfully. Um, but so some of us, like the Nephites, perhaps are prone to, um, to arrogance and self-flattery. For other people, though, I think that self-deception can also take the form of self-hatred or of feelings of worthlessness. Um, these are also forms of deception. So Enos wrestles with himself before God and tries to summon the hard work and the bravery that it takes to see things as they really are before God. And when he can do that, when he can strip away his own prejudices, his own biases, then he's able to accept the grace of God, God's love into his heart, and then radiate it outward towards the Nephites and the Lamanites. So that's one take on what it might mean that, that Enos wrestles before God. Um, Christian, I'm wondering, um, and I am not monitoring the chat in order to keep my thoughts focused, but um, have any other um, ideas come in on that question, what it means to do something or to pray before God? We'll let Christian, un oh, I need to unmute Christian. Oh, forgive me, Christian. Here we go. Okay, uh, <laughs> let me read a couple of these. I have suspected his wrestling is to acknowledge he has pursued his own interests for many years while feeling the responsibility to take on his father's mantle, who has been dead for many years, and wondering if he can succeed given how, let's see, there it is, how harsh he later describes both the Lamanites and the Nephites. Mm -hmm. Would you like me to go on or, or do one at a time? Um, no, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and do several, yeah. Okay, I like the idea of honesty and also the idea that God is moderating my inner dialogue to help me stay on track. Another, does before God imply a distance between Enos and God, that God is not part of that struggle? And if so, does that leave us alone to face such challenge or is God there in the wrestling? Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of Mark Twain's cannot pray a lie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the idea that you cannot pray a lie in Hamlet. Yeah, that's right. Those are, those are fabulous. Um, you know, thinking about that question of whether or not, um, does this wrestle before God rather than a wrestle with God? Does that mean that God is somehow removed and that um, Enos is kind of left alone in this dark night of the soul to do this wrestling on his own? Um, I don't know. Um, I one thing I will say is that I've noted in um, the in these first 18 verses how closely the narrative of Enos parallels the narrative of the brother of Jared. There are so many close thematic connections. Um, and I won't take the time to go through them all, but um, the emphasis on faith, the emphasis on God um, not being able to lie, um, 
there's a really close connection. It's very clear that Moroni has read Enos and, um, and knows this work of literature and is referencing it um, as he formulates um, the story of the brother of Jared. And of course, the story of the brother of Jared is a theophany where um, he does enter in, into the presence of the Lord. So this would lead me to think that, um, that this wrestle actually does bring Enos close to the Lord and that his unfolding struggle is unfolding relationally um, with God. So that would be just one response to those, to that, to that comment. Um, thank you. Okay, um, moving on to my next point. Here we go, I'll share my screen again here. <clears throat> Takes me a minute, I think, for it to... Okay, Enos as priestess. Here we have this beautiful, this is by Jorge Coco, the um, Argentinian Latter-day Saint oil painter who's becoming very well known. Um, his beautiful image here of Enos at night. I love that moon up there um, in the sky. So, <clears throat> um, as we mentioned, um, in First Nephi 1, um, Enos signals that he is self-consciously writing scripture, right? He is writing Nephite scripture, and he does this. He's not just writing an informal diary. Um, he's writing scripture, and he does this by um, so self-consciously echoing the form of the first verse of 1 Nephi 1. So what he's writing is not just an off-the-cuff personal narrative, and perhaps also his prayer is not simply a spontaneous personal prayer. Often when I've thought about the story in the book of Enos, I, I do think of it as a kind of spontaneous prayer that comes upon him, maybe somewhat like the way we think about Joseph Smith's prayer in the sacred grove, a kind of unmediated reaching out to God, like, like our own prayers, perhaps. Um, but I think there are a couple of clues in the text that what's happening here is actually a liturgical scene, a ritual scene, and that Enos is there in the forest in his capacity as priest. So I'll just kind of quickly rattle off four reasons why I think this might be the case. First of all, um, that the, the wrestle, right? And the way that, um, that he invokes Jacob's wrestle with God in Genesis 32, this wrestle itself is a ritual embrace, right? And it's reminiscent of a temple liturgy. So putting himself in the place of Jacob, wrestling God is to put himself in um, a temple context where there's this ceremonial ritual embrace. Okay, second, why was Enos in the forest hunting wild beasts in the first place? He goes on to tell us that unlike the Lamanites who consume wild beasts, sometimes raw, um, the Nephites have domesticated flocks and crops that provide their food. So why was he in the forest hunting wild beasts? Well, perhaps he's there um, to obtain animals for ritual sacrifice. Is, we're also told several times during in this material that the Nephites observe the law, the ritual law of Moses. Um, a third reason would be an allusion to Psalm 95. Um, Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This really closely parallels the language in verse four of Enos. My soul hungered and I kneeled down before my maker. When I, um, when I read this 
this, this struck me as really unusual. Um, I thought it's, you don't see Nephites kneeling very often in the Book of Mormon. And so I did a little search and sure enough, um, the idea of kneeling for prayer is very unusual in the Book of Mormon. It only ever appears other than here um, when Christ is among the Nephites and he is giving them a kind of ceremonial liturgical form and kneeling occurs during in that scene. And then again in Moroni, where Moroni is describing the Eucharistic liturgy. Um, he describes kneeling there as well. So the fact that Enos is kneeling is, um, is unusual, it's notable, and it puts him again in a kind of ritual um, or liturgical context, um, as, as well as does the psalm. Um, so then again, this also echoes Psalm 95, um, and psalms, of course, are used in temple, in ancient temple liturgies. Um, so if that is the case, um, and Enos is here praying in a priestly capacity. Um, he's performing a kind of ordinance or a sacrament, as we would think of it. Um, then this has a remarkable implication for another striking feature of this episode. And that is the way that the story codes Enos, I believe, as female, as a woman. Um, there are a lot, there are several reasons. Um, there's the night setting, right, with the moon. And night is traditionally associated with women. Um, this language of strugglings and labors. If there's any obstetricians in our audience, tell me if I'm wrong via chat, but um, all of my labors occurred during the night. It was a long night of struggling and laboring. And the language that Enos used coming back again and again to these strugglings and this labor, it feels like giving birth. Um, laboring on behalf of another person. Now, admittedly, these are kind of impressionistic um, associations. I think there's actually hard textual reason to believe that um, Enos is being coded here as a woman. And that is in the way that the narrative really carefully alludes to three women in the Gospel of Luke. So let me share these ideas with you here. Okay, so first of all, Enos is portrayed as the importunate widow. In, this is a parable in Luke 18 about the unjust judge and the widow who importunes him, who implores him um, for a long period of time. And ultimately the judge is wearied and gives in and, and, um, and Jesus teaches, and shall not God avenge his own elect which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. So crying day and night. And here we have Enos saying, all the day long did I cry unto him, yea, and when the night came, I did still raise my voice. So in the day and the night and the crying, Enos is here um, um, being compared to the importunate widow. Okay, Enos as the anointing woman. In Luke 7, we have this beautiful narrative of the woman who comes into the dinner, um, anoints Christ's feet with um, ointment and bathes his feet with her tears. Um, and Jesus' associates are scandalized by this. Um, but Christ um, says unto her, and he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And he said to the woman, thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. And this, of course, is the exact language that the Lord uses towards Enos. Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed 
And I said, Lord, how is it done? And he said unto me, because of thy faith in Christ. So here, really closely related to that story of the anointing woman in Luke. And finally, Enos as the woman with an issue of blood. So we all know this beautiful story. Um, the woman with the issue of blood comes, seeks to touch the edge of Christ's robe. Um, she succeeds and is healed. And Christ senses this and, and he said unto her daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole, go in peace. And um, in the story of Enos, wherefore go to, thy faith hath made thee whole. So there it's actually a direct borrowing. So <clears throat> I think, now this is, this is speculative, it's, it's true. Um, but I think that the text is here um, coding Enos as a woman by making these close allusions to stories of women in um, Luke. And if this is the case, um, then this is really remarkable that we have a woman here in a priestly and liturgical capacity offering um, an intercessory prayer, um, specifically praying on behalf of others. In verse nine, I began to feel a desire for the welfare of my brethren, the Nephites, wherefore I did pour out my whole soul unto God for him. Sharon Harris, um, who has written the volume for the Maxwell Institute, um, short the or brief theological introductions um, on Enos, she um, notes this language of pouring out my whole soul um, and how this is a kind of Christ-like emptying of the self. Theologians call this kenosis, um, pouring out yourself, pouring Enos, emptying himself of his resentments and his prejudices so that he can be filled with the grace of God on behalf of the Nephites and the Lamanites. Um, so here we have um, a female coded figure acting in a ritual capacity to offer um, an intercessory prayer. Um, we have to look deeply in the Book of Mormon to find women um, and to especially to find women's agency. Um, so this might be one place where we can see that at work. So I wanted here to throw out another question, which is, about intercessory prayer, prayer on behalf of another person. Of course, Christ himself in the Garden of Gethsemane um, is our model for intercessory prayer. Um, but how, how does intercessory prayer work? And I will be honest that I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know. There's a lot about prayer that I don't understand, but I don't really know how it works to pray on behalf of another person, um, except for in one particular way, which I'll share now. But if you have thoughts on intercessory prayer, what that means, how it works, if it works, how does it relate to human agency and, um, and God's own limitations, um, I invite you to share that in the chat now. Meanwhile, for a moment, I'll um, share a few ideas. That I have on that. And then I'll ask Christian to share what you've shared. Okay, so intercessory prayer. Um, the, the very idea, of course, is a Christ-like one. Um, Christ instructed his disciples. But to those of you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. 
that is, um, those are hard words to swallow. Um, but that is what, that is the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. Pray for those who mistreat you. Um, so does intercessory prayer work? That's what I'm asking you. I don't know, except for on the prayer. I know, and I can testify that prayer on behalf of another person works on my soul. Um, and here is a beautiful quote that I wanted to share. Prayer does not make us less aware of the circumstances of life. It makes us even more aware than we ever were before. Why? Because we now see the world as God sees the world. We hear the cry of the poor as God hears the cry of the poor. We are less wrapped up in ourselves, more aware of the needs of others, not more self-centered than ever. We begin to see ourselves more and more as a member of the human community rather than as a unique freestanding individual. We know now in a way we have never realized before that we are not a world unto ourselves. So I think we see that exact psychological process happen in Enos's soul as he prays, right? He becomes less wrapped up in himself as he struggles to empty himself, empty, pour out his soul. Um, his, he is able to be filled with a radiating love for others um, that radiates outward to his own people, the Nephites, and then beyond that to their enemies, um, the Lamanites. And perhaps on Enos, the power of that prayer was that it softened his own heart towards his own people. And I'd like to think that it softened his own heart and his own attitudes towards the Lamanites. As I say, there's that language in verse 20 that um, is so difficult to get around. Um, but I would like to think that that is how intercessory prayer works on our own hearts by opening our perspective to those that we pray for. Um, but I would love now to hear, Christian, I'll unmute you. And if you would share other ideas that um, people submitted by chat. We'll be catching up a little bit. We've had some conversation about wild beasts. Uh, <laughs> But I'm going to jump over that. Um, yeah, let's just stick to the question on intercessory prayer. Okay. I, I, I'd like to back up because there are some good questions here, and, and I'm sorry that will back you up. Fascinating, as I wondered in my reading of verse 8, if the same response could apply to those who seek to know their heavenly mother, whose power and presence is not yet revealed to the world, but who we long to see ah, in future time. Uh, another, please inquire of Rosalind whether she has considered whether the book of Enos is unique in the sense that it is an example of personal essay. Seneca is thought to have originated this type of essay in his letters from Stoic. As a personal essay, it may not be appropriate to look at brushstrokes. If it is a personal essay describing his lifelong wrestle with life, there's nothing disjunctive about the parts she has parsed. A personal essay reveals the writer's inner self. So this personal essay provides a window into what makes Enos celestial. Um, his pouring out phrase closely resembles the words and actions of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Are there, other, are there any examples of other men being coded as women in any Jewish religious writing? Good question. I would need the biblical scholars to pipe in on that. And, and one more reference from for Samuel. And Hannah answered and said, 
No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Ah, wonderful. Thank you for whoever submitted that. That's an, another wonderful and clear reference there. Okay, keep going here. Um, prayer is open is to open ourselves to the vulnerability of someone else's journey. We find it hard enough to maintain our own vulnerability, but our effort to increase our openness can be a bomb for others. The softening of hearts is to open creativity and out-of-the-box solutions, perhaps to realize and activate God's power as well as where we can be humbled by his presence. I don't know how intercessory prayer works, but have experienced that it does. Maybe that's enough. Mm -hmm. God sent his reign on the just and the unjust. Do we not find relief, even salvation, by giving ourselves, especially our, our faith, to others? To me, that is the essence and power of prayer. Perhaps praying for others puts us in partnership with God and blessing others. Our faith and pleas on their behalf adds greater power to the ways God is already willing to bless them. It also allows God to inspire us with ways we can help him to bless them. Those are wonderful. Um, thank you. Were there additional ones, Christian, or is that pretty much covered? Let's see. One more here. Intercessory prayer. It seems important to distinguish between praying for someone and on behalf of someone. On behalf of indicates a much stronger identification and empathy with the position of that person. Perhaps what is described in the baptismal covenant in Mosiah. That's really wonderful. I want to think more about that. Um, yeah. Force a person and on behalf of a person. I also really love um, the comment of what, um, what relief, the, the relief that comes. Um, you know, Enos describes his struggles and his labors and crying unto God, but there is also incredible joy and relief that comes in giving up these self-deceptive stories, right? Carrying the weight of who we are on our shoulders always um, and being willing to shed that um, and open ourselves um, to living for other people in a, in a Christ-like way. Um, there is great relief in that. So thank you. Wonderful ideas. I'm going to go back and copy all those from the chat when we're done here so I can think about those more. So um, here, as our time is moving on so quickly, we'll move on to the final point that I wanted to share with you today. I wish I were much faster at this. Okay, prophecy and repentance. Here I have um, this beautiful image, and I almost even hate to share it here because it cannot do it justice, but this is Kirk Richards' beautiful, magnificent, monumental, um, overwhelming oil painting um, of the creation called The Breath of Life that um, shows male and female um, deities um, involved in creation. And you'll see in a moment why I have shared that here. So... <clears throat> In Enos, Jerem, and Omni, so moving on now beyond simply Book of Enos, um, there are two features that really stood out to me as I was reading through this. Um, and I want to suggest that they're related. So the first one is this apparent exhaustion of prophecy as these entries get shorter and shorter. 
and the writers seem to have little new or living revelation to record. Now, Sharon Harris sees this as a kind of selfless gesture on Jerem's part, who says, you know, I don't need to share my own revelations because my everything that my fathers have already shared suffices, right? So it's possible that there's a kind of um, selfless holding back of, of, of the self here. Um, but I think it's undeniable that that Nephite prophetic culture is becoming impoverished. And, um, and exhausted during these centuries that, this, that these books cover. Um, the other feature that I noticed is this kind of growing harshness and punitive tone of Nephite religion. In Enos um, verses 20, 23 and 24, the prophets were told had to continually reminding them of death and the duration of eternity. We had a long time. I want to talk about the duration of eternity. There's so much about metaphysics that's but any philosophy nerds want to stay after and chat about what the duration of eternity is. I'm up for it. But continually reminding them of death and the duration of eternity, stirring them up continually to keep them in the fear of the Lord. And then in Jerem, verse 10, the prophets of the Lord did threaten the people of Nephi, according to the word of God, that if they did not keep the commandments, but should fall into transgression, they should be destroyed from off the face of the land. So the kind of impoverishment of prophetic culture and this kind of growing harshness or punitive threatening tone of Nephite preaching, um, are those related? Um, and I want to suggest a scenario in which they are, that those two kind of go together. And we can read it as kind of a cautionary, um, a, a cautionary observation. Um, you know, during these, during these three short books, we hear several times that the Nephites observe the law of Moses. Um, this is important to their religious practice and also very important to their self-conception vis-a-vis the Lamanites. Um, so if we look at the Hebrew Bible there, the law and the prophets are these essential partners in declaring and bringing to pass the kingdom of God. Sometimes the law and the prophets might be in a kind of dynamic tension with each other. Um, the law written, prophecy oral, the law stable, prophecy evolving, right? Um, sometimes the law, most of the time law and the prophets are um, in balance and in concert. At this moment, though, in Nephite history, it seems as though law and prophecy have gotten out of balance, right? There are many prophets, but there's little prophecy. There's little living, flowing revelation. And the result seems to be a kind of spiritual malaise um, that the prophets try to address um, but they feel that their only option is through coercive means. And we see that it just doesn't work, right? It just doesn't work. It has little effect and what effect it does have is temporary. Um, so, so what is going wrong? What is the cause of this kind of impoverishment of Nephite um, prophetic culture? Um, and I don't, I don't know for sure. Um, as everything that I offer here is speculative, but here's, here's one idea. I noticed as I was reading through the striking absence of the notion of repentance. The prophets have a lot to say to the people, but they don't call them to repentance. Now, I have to concede. If you look in Jerem 1.12, 
I, I had this idea last night. I was so excited about it that I was reading through and I thought, oh, dang it, I was wrong. Um, in verse 12, for they did prick their hearts with the word continually stirring them up unto repentance. So the idea of repentance is present this one time here, but the prophets never actively call the people to repentance. They threaten them, they scare them, they warn them, they try to coerce them, but they don't invite them to repentance. And repentance cannot occur, true repentance cannot occur in a coercive context, only in a context of love and spiritual freedom. At least I think this is the case. Um, so perhaps the decline of Nephite religious culture in the period before King Benjamin's address is related to this impoverished idea of what repentance is. Um, now, I wanted to share a little personal experience here, as every good do gospel doctrine teacher does. I am an early morning seminary teacher. Now, I may have some members of my ward who are watching today. And if you are here, you're going to get some real talk. <laughs> But it's not your kids. It's not your kids. Um, seminary is really rough. Um, if you could see the amount of shenanigans that go on as I as I try to teach and structure this classroom, and it, it's I, I so feel for them. It's six a.m. Um, but the phone use, the the distracting texting, the um, the putting on of makeup, the watching of skate videos. I mean, just it. It's hard to explain what it's like. And I have really struggled to figure out what do I do? How do I cope with this classroom management? And it has been such a dilemma for me because I, I do, I am truly convinced that spiritual learning and an acquaintance with God cannot happen in an environment of coercion and pressure, that it can only happen in a place of spiritual freedom. So I am so loath to impose any sort of punitive measures or any kind of coercive regime because I want them to be there because they want to be there. I think that's the only way that they can come to know God. On the other hand, I also want to teach them some stuff about the scriptures, right? I also want to teach them some content about the Book of Mormon. Um, and content about the Book of Mormon, that's information that can be conveyed um, in a lot of different environments, right? It's very different from coming to know God ourselves, um, and, and there's no doubt that I would be much more successful in conveying the content of the Book of Mormon to them if I were able to create a somewhat more structured and disciplined classroom environment. But that has been my wrestle, and I have thought and prayed about it, um, how I can most effectively teach these young people. Um, ultimately, I have come to think that I can only do it through offering them love and inviting them to repent. And by repent, I don't mean the four steps of repentance. I mean, turn to God. So <clears throat> I wanted to um, solicit from you your most meaningful understanding of repentance. What is repentance to you in the most empowering, energetic, and positive way that you can think about repentance. I would love to invite you to share, um, share that with us. Um, and as you are submitting those via chat, um, I will just share how I've come to understand repentance um, in my life. And so for me, 
repentance is really closely related to creation. For me, repentance is the power of creation that God has graciously shared with his children. Something um, unique and and striking about the Latter-day Saint revelation is the way in which God fractures and distributes his power among his children um, in a kind of Eucharistic way, including the power of creation. Um, So for me, repentance is to activate the power of creation, of new creation, and to think about every interaction with a person or indeed with an object um, as an, an opportunity to call one another into being in a fresh and new way. Um, I truly believe that the universe is recreated in every breath. Um, and for me, that is what repentance is about. It's the power to create anew. Um, <clears throat> I find that to be an energizing and empowering um, and positive way to think about repentance versus a kind of shame-based understanding of, of repentance. Um, so now, unmuting Christian, um, I'll ask Christian to share what you've shared here about repentance. Um, let's see. I think of it as the chance to try again, getting right with the Lord. These are different people getting right with the Lord every day to fully understand my acceptance uh, by and reconciliation with God. Uh, A question about the painting. People would like to know where that is. Um, It's in the the Brigham Young University Museum of Art. Actually, it was there. I can't tell you where it's where it is now. Sorry. It's J. Kirk Richards. Okay, and it's J. Kirk Richards. Yes. Uh, Deidre's story about Sherem is instructive here as well. Jacob's efforts to preach to his people fail until his people see a transformed, repentant person before them. Wonderful. Hmm. I get teared up by some of these comments. Sorry about the <laughs> choke in my voice. Um, Bible Dictionary has something I like, a change of mind and a fresh view about God, among other things. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, let's see. I think on, on this topic, I think that's good. I... I... I personally like the idea of transformation as, a, as opposed to um, fixing or correcting of being, of being transformed when I have, this is me, not the other comments. <laughs> <laughs> Repentance is recognizing and responding to the love of God. Opening my heart to feel the spirit of God and turn towards him. Thank you. Those are, um, those are all wonderful. And I invite you to keep on submitting them. Everybody can see, um, see the chat if you have figured out how to use that tool on your app. Um, we are coming here um, to the end of our time. Um, so I'll just move into a few concluding thoughts. Um, you know, <clears throat> I'm fasting today. Um, 
and many of you may be fasting as well. Um, and we're experiencing something unknown and um, unprecedented in its um, danger and in its gravity for the human family um, and for all of creation, in fact. Um, so if I were the teacher that I wish I were, I would have spent all my time today on the first two verses of Words of Mormon, which I'll share with you here. And now I, Mormon, being about to deliver up the record which I have been making into the hands of my son Moroni, behold, I have witnessed almost all the destruction of my people, the Nephites. And it is many hundreds of years after the coming of Christ that I deliver these records into the hands of my son. And it supposeth me that he will witness the entire destruction of my people. But may God grant that he may survive them, that he may write somewhat concerning them and somewhat concerning Christ, that perhaps someday it may profit them. <clears throat> if ever there was a prophet for this moment, it is Mormon. He lived through the end of his world and recent events have, I think, made it more possible than ever for us to understand what that was like to live in a place where the future is unknown. The future that we thought we knew is being erased before our eyes. And we are being asked if we're willing to give up all. Um, it's an apocalypse. That is what Mormon lived through and he is the prophet of the personal apocalypse. Um, I wish that I had wisdom on this. There's wisdom out there. Um, people have been writing. Jenna Reese had a wonderful column, I think, this week on how the coronavirus and the worldwide pandemic is an apocalypse in the sense that it reveals much about our ethics. And um, there's wisdom out there. I'm not there yet. I'm still wrestling um, in the forest to get my wisdom on, um, on what this apocalypse means for me. But um, I just want to acknowledge that these are the verses which are most relevant to our fast today and our prayers today. Um, and I hope that you will read them, that you will be inspired and you will be wise and that you will share your wisdom with me because I need it. Um, but finally, just to end um, on a somewhat more encouraging note, Omni 126, kind of in the middle of nowhere, right? Omni, not exactly known for its, its, its bounteous feast of the word of the Lord. But here is this beautiful verse here, Omni 26. And now, my beloved brethren, I would that you should come unto Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel, and partake of his salvation and the power of his redemption. Yea, come unto him and offer your whole souls as an offering unto him and continue in fasting and praying and endure to the end. And as the Lord liveth, ye will be saved. So I am, um, I'm in the forest. Um, it's before midnight for me. Um, 
And um, I'm grateful to have Enos as um, a companion there with me under the light of the moon. And that is what I um, share with you. I thank you for all you who have participated. Um, I appreciate the constructive and supportive comments that you contributed. And I really thank you for the time that you shared with me today. Christian, I will um, unmute you and we will ask Linda to give us a closing prayer. Our dear, gracious, loving Father, our dear eternal God, we thank Thee for this time together. We're so grateful for Rosalind's insight and wisdom and vulnerability, and for the comments made from people engaged who are seeking the Spirit of Christ in their lives. We pray for thy blessing on our dear planet and on those of us who are called to nurture it, that we may help heal it in the many ways in which it is now broken. We pray, Father, for thy blessing to be on each of us in our own individual wrestles and struggles, that we might come with fresh hearts and enthusiasm to continue on this path of journeying towards uh, life and light. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Um, what I will do is now, um, if I can figure out how to, um, Christian, I will make you the host now. Make host and allow you to take control. And let me mention, as has been chatted and um, texted and emailed, um, I apologize. Everyone here had a blessed experience, but you may not know that we ended up capped at 100 participants by the way I organized this Zoom meeting. We were supposed to be capped at 500, but we were capped at 100. So. Every, and there was significant demand way beyond the number of people who were here today. If you have questions from friends or family who would like to have been here, we will be posting this recording today um, through the uh, Dialogue uh, Facebook account. I, it will be available today for anybody who was unable to participate or who wants to listen again. We will, uh, in the future, increase those limits and make it possible for many more people. In effect, this is very good news. The uh, interest far exceeded our expectations. Great job, Rosalind. That was terrific. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. And thanks, Christian and Linda, for handling the logistics side of it and um, yeah, allowing me to focus on the teachings. So. <clears throat> and next week is general conference <laughs> thank you all we're going to stop now and uh thank you for listening to the dialogue podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. 
If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.